Welcome to the Courage to Lead interview series for leaders who empower others to create supportive and inclusive workplaces where people can do their absolute best. Each week, I will interview a leader who epitomizes the ability to empower others to lead and create amazing workplaces, environments and communities because of the skills that they possess. In these interviews, I try as much as possible to let our guests do all the talking as they are the stars and not me. I trust you enjoy the lessons and wisdom each guest shares, and if you're like me, listen to the interviews a number of times to capture some of the true gems of leadership we hear each week. I absolutely love doing this interview. Today's guest is Rebecca Pinkstone, the CEO for Bridge Housing, a community housing provider in New South Wales that provides housing for people who are homeless or can no longer afford to live in the home they have. You're going to hear about sharing the load as a CEO. Looking after sick and injured kids is a way of life. A transition from a high achieving executive management position in government to the coalface where you can affect real change and willing to take a big pay cut to make a difference. A story about becoming the CEO of Bridge Housing, a community housing provider that provides homes to those most vulnerable in our community. A story about learning from mentors and other leaders who help fill the areas where your own leadership skill needs support. A story about a workplace that's been nominated for Best, Best Workplace Awards for the last five years. Check out thevoiceproject.com. An agreement for equal partnership in, in the home. A CEO with three children can't do it all. See how the traditional male and female roles in a home can be shared and negotiated with some creative and planning outcomes. You'll be uh, very impressed with what they came up with. And a great summary of what is possible to end homeless and how Bridge Housing as a community housing provider supports that goal. And a closing bit of advice for leaders who want to travel a similar path to Rebecca Pinkstone and create an organisation where employees are empowered and supported helping drive organisational performance. I hope you love this interview because I love doing it. Welcome to the Courage to Lead interview series, um, someone that I've been trying to get for a while, but um, family circumstances and business circumstances have has, um, has prevented us from getting together earlier. So our guest on the program today is Rebecca Pinkstone, the CEO of Bridge Housing. Welcome to the show today, Rebecca. Thanks, thanks for having me, Alan. And yes, we've been caught up, haven't we? Uh, um, balancing being a CEO with also being a mum of three and uh, the ongoing issues around child illness and, and things like that. So you've been very patient with me. Uh, no, I, I love, that's one of the reasons, you know, one of the one of the reasons I, I wanted to interview you as well. I know you're a, a working mum, a high level performing working mum. And, and just to give listeners an idea, we were scheduled to do this last week. And I think it was Noah. You got a phone call. That's about right. Noah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you had to take him, go, come to school and take him to hospital straight away. So it was Noah That's all right. right. I'm all all good, all just jarring. And, you know, the good thing about little children is that they don't have um uh, strong bones they're very flexible so it's more jarring than um, breaking which was very fortunate and um, I know that you know my husband as well and he's a teacher so it was um, my turn to go and do the do the rush off uh, in the middle of the day. 
Lovely. I love that um, at your level as a CEO of, of, of Bridge Housing that you can in today's world, it's important that partners share the responsibility. So you just said that Tom, um, Tom's got a new job as a teacher um, and so it was your turn to, to carry the load as, as the parent parental responsibility. So we'll, we might go there um, later on in the interview about, about what that means to have that kind of relationship so that you can both excel in your careers, if you're happy to go there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think it's really important because um, the increasingly you need to recognise the interconnection between home and your working life and um, how you balance work and home. It, it's it's in the forefront of all of our minds and probably through COVID, that blurring between um, work life and home life became even more pronounced. Um, and yeah. trying to negotiate that when you have a senior role and um, and how you negotiate that with your partner, because I have to say that Tom does do a lot of the heavy lifting at home, and that was really a, an explicit um, uh, choice that we made because we understood that both of us couldn't be doing that and people had to be available when kids needed them. Um, so negotiating that in your relationship becomes really important because you need to put your family first at all times and 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 that in a partnership has to be negotiated um, as well. That's beautiful. Um, well, we will, we'll talk about how because there is a, there is something I want to ask you about. I think I, I, I um, alluded to it before we started recording the interview. I, I read an article about how you and Tom um, met in the workplace and, and what what flowed from that. So when, we'll, when we discuss that part of your life, um, we'll go into how the rest of it happened. The, the you know the negotiation, the the partnership in in your working life. So so before we kind of kick off, um, so I just want to give a, a quick summary of what what is Bridge Housing and what does it do. Sure. Um, Bridge Housing is a community housing provider. So we're a, a for-purpose business and we uh, manage social and affordable housing for people in need. And we also develop that. So at the moment, we manage um, around 3,500 homes, um, providing a home for about 5,500 residents across Sydney. And uh, we we do that as a social landlord. So we provide housing for some of the most vulnerable people in society who've come through from homelessness or who have been living in insecure or vulnerable housing or have been vulnerable in their housing. Um, so we take our role as a as a landlord much uh, really seriously and, and providing those sort of supports to our residents to really sustain their tenancies and reach their goals. Um, so it, we we provide housing, but we do more than just housing. Um, we make sure that we help our residents connect to their communities. Um, and the other part of our work is developing uh, new housing, new social and affordable housing for people in need, which, as you can imagine, in Sydney is a, is a big ask at the moment in the middle of a housing crisis. Before we go into um, who Rebecca Pinkstone is, and I'll let you start wherever you want to start, um, just uh, one question, two questions I like to ask guests on the program just to kind of um, uh, make it fair for everyone in your life, either as a school kid or um, at family or in your first few jobs, what was your first experience of leadership? Well, I, I suppose I've always come to leadership from the perspective that everyone is a leader in lots of different ways in their lives and it's not about title. 
necessarily. Yes, it, when we talk about leadership in a corporate or in a business environment, it's often about title. But leadership can be shown in so many ways. And I grew up in a family that was very focused on social justice and equality. And we lived in the inner city um, when it was affordable to do so for people on working incomes. Yeah. And it was a yeah. really diverse environment to grow up in and 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 you appreciated that diversity and valued that diversity of of different people living together in, in the city. And and I think that I've taken that sort of social justice framework through throughout my life. Um and and in terms of that sort of leadership. Well, getting involved in social movements when I was involved when I was at university and 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 also in school really um, involved in things like for, um, social justice for women's rights and international solidarity movements, you really see that leadership can be quite dispersed. It doesn't have to be hierarchical, and that the forms of leadership that do best in social movements are actually those that are based on consensus making and bringing people together and finding a common cause. And so those things have really influenced me as I've gone on into my professional and working life. And then as I've gone on into more senior roles, that really leadership's about bringing people with you and having a vision of where you want to go and recognising that there's often many ways of getting there. And through debate and discussion, um, you can often come up with a better way of doing things than just one person making a decision as as some of those traditional models of leadership have have um, sort of relied upon. You just kind of summed up why I invited you on the show, Rebecca. <laughs> that's, um, <laughs> I mean, that's exactly, uh, you know, the, this program, the, the Courage to Lead interview series, uh, seeks out leaders who um, who empower others to 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 do their absolute best um, in creating supportive and inclusive either workplaces, environments, or communities. Does it my way or the highway? It doesn't achieve that. So um, it's uh, that's very refreshing to hear how you view um, what leadership is all about. So, yeah, and I think, um, I think Alan, you and I have worked in areas that are complex social problems, homelessness, housing policy, like they're complex issues. They're wicked problems in some ways. And, and what that working in that environment teaches you is there's lots of very smart people who know a lot about those areas of working and what becomes even more critical in those environments is partnership working. And so you've really got to be able to create those links between different people and between different organisations because um, problems like we're working on are multifaceted and they will require a lot of input from different stakeholders and different um, perspectives to get the right outcome. Perfect. I couldn't, um, it's, it's, it's what I love about uh, some of the people, all of the people actually that I've interviewed on this program are just it's just ingrained in your brains and it just rolls off your tongue because you do it every day. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, and that's just, it's not, it's not, I mean, it is hard work, but you make it look easy. So <laughs> let's go there. Um, where, where does, where does that come from? How does Rebecca Pinkstone um, create uh, the, the Rebecca Pinkstone that's talking today? Where, where have all those skills come from? And you, you go where you want to go, back to school, well, you know, what influenced you to be who you are today? Well, obviously, I think your family environment, and I was fortunate that I grew up in a family environment that um, that really focused on social justice and equity, and um, 
and uh, family, my family, my family, they encouraged debate. You know, children weren't, were encouraged, my brother and I were encouraged to discuss the issues of the day and what they meant. And, um, you know, my, my father was an academic and my mum worked her whole life in uh, as an accountant. And the, they both of those families, even when they separated, they both had that sort of view about discussing what's going on in society and what it means and and how and importantly, what's your role in making society better? And so you take that with you and I, and that sort of influenced me um, when when I went to university and studied political science and 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 political economy really helped me understand then more of that structural element of society and how that impacts on individual outcomes and people's life life journeys so it was sort of built on over time and and then um throughout my career in the public service you know i was very fortunate to work with very smart people um many of them who became my mentors um throughout my working life and always rely you know, creating those sort of links becomes very important in your professional life because you can see the people that you want to be. And I think that's really important when, particularly when you're starting out on your leadership journey, that you see people and you have the support from people that actually you really value their leadership style. So you can learn from them practically um, because it's fine to do a leadership course and learn in theory, but when you see those people doing that in, you know, in your presence and you're learning from them, I've been very fortunate my whole career to have those people, and 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 I really want to encourage that for younger people coming through, both in bridge housing, um, and 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 more broadly in terms of my networks to to create those linkage linkages with with other great leaders because that's that's a really important um, part of your journey. That's, um, that's, that's exactly, uh, I can relate to that. Uh, yeah. At the level you're at, um, uh, and, you know, I've, I've, I've been there as well, you, you, it's quite healthy to have peers, not necessarily in your own field, that uh, when you have a bad day, you can ring them <laughs> or, or have a coffee Absolutely. with them. Absolutely. And, um, and, yeah, yeah. and at the same time, um, you do learn from them. You mentioned mentors. Is there a couple of mentors that you'd like to um, mention, and and what was it about them um, that that worked for you? Look, I've had so many, Alan, um, throughout my career. I'd feel bad to mention a couple of them by name um, because yeah, yeah. every every role I've had, I've had that sort of support. And I mean, even in in my role now, I have that mentoring and that peer connection. Oh, you know, when I became a CEO at Bridge Housing, um, I'd worked here for a number of years as a Chief Operating Officer. But I have to say, when I became a CEO, broadly the CEOs within this sector were very welcoming of me, and in particular the female CEOs that were leading community housing providers have been yeah. amazing in terms of being those um, sounding boards and and connectors for me. So so I think you can find them. Um, it doesn't matter your role. It doesn't matter your industry. You can find those people that can really um, be supports for you and and be those sounding boards for you. And sometimes, as you say, it's good to have those outside your actual 
um, uh, business because because then you get a different perspective. So broadening them out and not only thinking about community housing, but you know we do work in property development, and I've got contacts in that industry that are really great sounding boards for me as I've been um, going into this role in support services and CEOs that we work with. So really broadening those out. Um, it, it's been, it, it's a really important part of supporting yourself as a leader and having those people that you can trust and test different things with. Beautiful. Um, one of the things that you mentioned in that, which led me to the mentor question, um, and you handled that, uh, that, that's a really good example. Like, like some people, um, you know, in some organisations, they have one mentor, so they're kind of aligned with that one person. And yeah, if that exactly. one person, comes a foul, but I think what you just talked about is is probably very refreshing. It, it is not probably. It's it's very refreshing that you've had multiple mem mentors across a, yeah. a number of uh, professions. And would it be fair to say that you can still call them now about anything? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And and I think at, at times that 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 line between me, you know professional mentor and and then friend and and. Um, yeah, you know yeah. that 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 blurs and ends, and you actually just have those strong friendships as a result of that. Um, but yeah, yeah. I think it is really important to have those people that have that just bring those skills and experience, or they embody a leadership quality that you you think probably you don't have. Um, so they're a good person to go to to talk to because they have different perspectives, and you can learn from them. So yeah, I really think it's important to tap into. Um, understanding where your gaps are and and how you can um, use your networks to really help um, fill some of those gaps and, and get a deeper understanding and or knowledge about different areas. Yeah. Um, when, when you said that last line about uh, embodying leadership qualities that you don't have um, and it's important to identify where your gaps are, um, probably the last two of the last three um, people on the program have talked about that. Yeah. Uh, exactly that issue. And sometimes those gaps almost prevent them in their own head from having a go at the job, the new job, the new challenge. Yeah. Would Rebecca Pinkstone be prepared to say, you said embody a leadership quality you don't have. What's yeah. I, like when I know what you can do, <laughs> um, uh, what, what don't you have? What, what, are you prepared to talk about that? Well, I think I think that there's a you know when when um, before I became the CEO, I'd been doing some work on um, and the board and and within Bridge Housing, which is really best practice, had been doing work on succession planning, and we do that within the business at all levels, um, so that you can be really clear about where your gaps are and when you want to take that next level um, move in your career. And so those that, you know, you do lots of things like 360 evaluations and psychometric testing, and they go right down into the depths of your history and your past. And, um, yeah. and you know, one of those, one of those areas is discussion and debate. So I grew up in a household where discussion and debate it's not something you take personally, right? It's almost like you need to have that discussion and debate to get to the right perspective or the end perspective or a different way of doing things. But not everyone has grown up in that environment. 
Some people have grown up yeah. in environments where discussion and debate actually isn't encouraged or, yeah. you know, children should be seen or not heard or um, conflict when it happened was so extreme that it's quite frightening. And, yeah. and so really being aware of the way that different people have experienced that on their life journeys and how, you know, I, I would see discussion and debate and then we'd, there'd be a debate and we'd change things and, and I would move on. Some people don't always see, see it in that way. They actually get threatened or they don't want to have that sort of a, um, they feel uncomfortable if there's uh, any debate in the room. So you really need to be aware of that in terms of your style and your leadership style and make sure that you're able to enable people to do that and that it's a safe environment. And so that's one of the things that we've been working on. How did at Bridge Housing, you know, creating safe environments for people to challenge because really it's through that sort of challenging and thinking about different ways of doing things that you drive innovation. If everyone just does everything the same as it's always been or there's just one way of doing it, it's quite unusual that you'll get innovation in that environment. And innovation is one of our core values at Bridge Housing. And so you need to be valuing different perspectives and doing that in a respectful way. And for me, that means also mediating where I've come from and, and my, I suppose, love of that discussion um, and debate and being able to recognise that different people can participate in different ways and you need to create an environment that lets them do that. And, you know, I don't do it perfectly. It's a learning process. But being self-aware and really understanding those things about yourself as a leader and sharing them is important because then people know where you're coming from and you can encourage people to, you know, let you know when you you've done the wrong thing or when they think that or when they think that you've been difficult in a situation that you can encourage your staff to do that with you. Well, Susie, you um, you explained that really well. Um, and I think that's um I think that's you know a lot of workplaces are afraid to have that discussion about you know, this, what was the word you used um discussion and debate. And debate, yeah. They are. They are because they're worried that it'll end up in um, conflict. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that's a really good example. But um, rather than seeing conflict as as something that is a scary thing, I think you know when you're valuing diversity in the workplace, you and and you're valuing difference, you've got to be prepared to have different perspectives come through, and sometimes that will cause con conflict. And perhaps conflict is a natural part of interpersonal relationships anyway, but it's how you handle yeah, that yeah. and how you foster that. Um, so. Uh, you know, foster a, 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 a response to that that is still respectful of everyone um, and, and and keeping that at the foreground when you're making those decisions, I think. You talked about you, you held senior positions in the public service. What, what part of the public service did you work in? Um, so I worked in the Department of Communities and Justice, which, which used to be called the Department of Housing. Um, and I worked there for over a decade um, and I was fortunate because it's a huge agency, about 4,000 staff, and I was able to work in lots of different areas during that time from frontline service delivery in public housing 
um, through to policy development and then to really growing the community housing and um, sector. So there were lots of different opportunities in that department. And I have to say lots of very smart people that I worked with and, and learned from during that time. Um, so that really created a bit of a bug, uh, um, a passion around housing and homelessness, and uh, and I've and I've I've held on to that for the last while. <laughs> uh, while yeah, I just I just loved it because I really saw the transformational role that a safe, secure, and affordable home had for people, individuals, and families, and communities, and. And it, it's it's amazing working in a field where I get to see that every day. Do you want to explain that just a little bit more? Um, I know. I mean, yeah, what, what, yeah. What does that mean? Well, well, I think I think as I've gotten older, I you know I've reflected on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and and you just see that without secure accommodation, without somewhere safe to sleep to live um you you can't reach your potential as a person you you can't because the stress that comes from insecure housing from from not knowing if you have somewhere to sleep um to sleeping in an unsafe environment where you're always on on alert you you really can't reach your potential in that sort of an environment so so going back to the basics of saying you know, housing is a human right. It's part of a fundamental um, service in society if you're vulnerable and it's part of a fundamental foundation for a better life. So you really do need to have that housing um, to create that stability for yourself and for kids and, and for families. And, and just working in that environment, I see how... It, once people are housed, how they are able to, you know, address their mental health or their health needs, um, reconnect with family and community, um, enter the workforce, go back to education. Um, kids have a safe place to stay and they know what school they're going to be in and they have the stability of going to their local school. So if you're an older person, you can age in place without that that fear of being homeless in your old age. It's just really critical for a, for a for a um, for your life. And what we get to do every day at Bridge Housing is make sure that people get access to those homes that that create that foundation for them. Kind of leads me to to the the question back to the roles you held in. In the public service in those department of community justice and department of housing i think i've read read in your linkedin profile i think i saw it you were at a director level or even higher which um yeah. to our listeners that's that's a pretty seriously important role like in the police that would be equivalent to a um probably an assistant commissioner um yeah. which is only about what in the our job there's in my old job that's probably there's only 20 of them uh, how long were you a director uh, um and what were you a director of yeah, so I worked in um, as a as a director in social housing policy when I was in housing. So I I was um, for a while I was an area director in um, in frontline service delivery in public housing, 
and then moved into um, into the sort of central part of the business, writing policy and and developing programs for the community housing sector. And then I became a director in social housing policy. And really, what that was about was what are the different elements of of a of our housing a social housing system and so in new south wales we have obviously public housing which is operated by the state or the government and we have community housing providers um, of which bridge housing is one and they have a board of management and we have aboriginal community housing providers as well and homelessness services and so social housing policy was around what are the policy settings you need for a good housing system that and and that all social housing providers um, participate in so one of the big reforms that we implemented through that through that role was implementing a, a common access scheme for social housing in New South Wales that brought together all of the community housing, the large community housing providers and public housing um, under housing pathways. And we now operate under one system and people can just apply for housing in any community housing or any um, public housing office and they can get a consistent approach and there's a single waiting list. So it was looking at major reforms to make the system easier and and better for for people who were trying to access housing. And through that role, I really got to know the community housing sector very well um, and also public housing and look at ways that we can create a more streamlined system for people who need to access social housing in New South Wales. So that's, um, I mean, that tells us your depth. But how, how, what I'm curious about um, is, you know, I've seen different people who have those high level public service positions and that, and that they're a sought after role. Um, what made you leave um, to take up a, a role that probably amongst your peers in the public service would be? But yeah. what made you leave that role? Uh, look, uh, I mean, I, I thought that there was probably more I could do from outside. Um, I, I'd, I'd been in the public service for a long time and I think, um, and I was passionate about housing. I didn't want to um, say, you know, go into another area within government just to change and get a more senior role in another department. I really, um, I really, I have a passion for housing, I suppose. So. Yeah. It, for me, it was about taking a risk and doing something differently. Um, and community housing uh, was at that stage where it was going to grow. And I and I really could see the potential within the community housing sector to deliver outside government. And I just wanted to be part of that journey. And and um, John Nicolades, who was the CEO before I took over, and he was a CEO for um, 15 years at Bridge Housing, um, it, you know, he really, he, he he said a very similar thing. He said, oh, you know, why do you want to come to, you're coming, you know, to a much smaller organisation at the moment, you're working in policy, you know, statewide policy for government, why do you want to come to, you know, Bridge Housing? And it was really about um, going back to the basics and saying, you know, where is my sphere of influence and and how can I make a difference? And I thought at that stage, you know, really having that sort of chief operating officer role, you can look at the policies and you can look, look at the way you deliver services and you can deliver a better experience for your residents. And I just wanted to have 
you know, be part of that journey that Bridge Housing was already on. Okay. So what was your first role at um, Bridge Housing? So um, when I came in, I started as the head of their housing. So all of their um, tenancy management and their pathway services. And then as we grew um, and started managing more property and um, we'd created a chief operating officer role and that brought together all of the housing service delivery, community development and engagement, and also asset management. And and that was a really great role because you got to see, um, you know, connect the tenant experience, which is really about, you know, their tenancy manager and the standard of their property. And you could bring them together and say, how are we delivering the best services for our residents? Um, and then having the community engagement work there so that we can make sure that we really enable our tenants to have a say in how we deliver our services and 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 the programs that we develop. So, so it, it became a much bigger role. Um, and yeah, it really became responsible for all frontline service delivery in the business. Okay. So let, let's talk about some dates there. When, when like you're in the, you're the director at a state level, uh, statewide level in social housing for... Well, I've been at Bridge for, yeah, I've been at Bridge for seven years. Um, so, and before that I'd been... Um, I was in, I was in government um, for gosh over ten years. So I've been, oh my god, I think I'm coming up to twenty years in housing. See, okay. Um, okay. Um, so yeah, I was sort of in that in that senior role for for about you know two or three years and had been. Um, yeah, very fortunate in the work that I'd done there and then I came to Bridge and, and I took on the CEO role a year ago. Okay. Um, I, you don't have to answer this because it's probably a personal thing. Did you take a, from the director in government to the, what was the title you talked about? The yeah, head of to head of, yeah um, I did, absolutely. Yes. And how did, a big one? Um, it was a big one, yeah. But but I so suppose a... I made that choice to go into something different, and you know, non-government, we're not paid as much as as the public service, that's for sure. So um, uh, yeah, it was it was that sort of decision, um, and and you know, to go to go to a different sector, and sometimes you do make that decision, don't you? It's it's a, it's not about the pay; it's about getting other experience. Um, yeah. To develop you, I've, I've often found, I've often found, um, sometimes you have to go backwards to go forwards. Yeah, uh, and learn new skills. Yeah. yeah well, yeah. also it's sort of like, um, it, it, you know, non-government organisations or for-profit organisations rarely pay the same sort of money as as a senior government positions, um, and and so it's about where do you want to be and what 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 do you want to where do you think you're going to be making the most impact at that time and so yep. that you know that the thing at the beauty about working at bridge housing um, is that you can see something that's not working and we have the power to change it yes we we have to 
create policy change and we you know if it's a big one we have to go to the board and we have to discuss it at a board level but um you actually can create change around things that aren't working and and i felt like um particularly as i was getting to the end of my stage in government um you know there is an awful lot of work that goes into policy and program development that doesn't actually end up in fruition on the ground um, yeah. And and it can get a little bit disappointing after a while because you're spending a lot of work on evidence-based policy and then it really does depend on p political will or the minister of the time to get that to happen um, or yeah. even the more senior executive in, in, in the department. And so, yeah, at Bridge Housing, it's really focusing on delivering and and creating new programs that work and and also looking internally and saying what can we do better and if we can do things that we can do better let's do it and and really we don't get people to do pieces of work that aren't going to go anywhere in the long run <laughs> yeah. which um, government's pretty famous for <laughs> yes um, yes yeah. you know sometimes you have a reform agenda and and everything's behind behind you and it's an exciting place to be i mean i i remember i was working in government um during the rudd stimulus program and we were ha we were working in partnership with community housing providers to hand over those new dwellings to the community housing sector and it was an exciting time there was a reform agenda we had a time frame we needed to deliver and those partnerships really came together so well um, uh, between government and between the community housing sector and between the building and development industry. It really came together. Um, but yeah. there were times in my career where, you know, there's only so many times you can rewrite a policy brief or a background paper yeah. or a policy yeah. change that never goes anywhere and it can be really frustrating. Yeah, I think you've been frustrating is a very kind word. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, you talked about what um, bridge housing could offer. And I think when I first met you um, in the homelessness space, uh, bridge housing was doing something called Project 70. Have I, have That's I got right. that right? Yeah, Platform um, 70. So that was the first one. Platform 70, yeah. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, that so... That gives you a good example to the listeners about what bridge housing can do to change people's lives. Yeah, so um, Bridge Housing was the first community housing provider in Australia to implement um, what we call a Housing First program, which is basically um, where you take long-term rough sleepers, people who have been sleeping on the street for many years, or um, and you put them straight into long-term accommodation with wraparound support. So if you if you know the the traditional pathway um, in the homelessness service system is that um, there's this notion that people have to be housing ready. So they go to a crisis accommodation service and then they go to, you know, that's up to three months and then they go to transitional accommodation, which might be up to 18 months. And then they're proven themselves and they move into long term housing. And, and what the research, particularly Samson Barris's research in the in the US showed is that every time for people who have been on the streets for a long time, who ha often have, you know, histories of trauma, abuse, um, may have mental health or drug and alcohol addiction, cognitive disability, every time you're sort of making them go through these steps um, of housing, 
you lose more and more of them. And that's why we see people yeah. who get entrenched in homelessness. And so Platform yeah. 70 was really the first funded program by the New South Wales government to say, let's look at this cohort and say, can we actually move them straight from the streets into a home with psychosocial support? And we worked with NEMI National to provide that support. Um, and Basically, we proved that, yes, you can do it and it works and you can sustain those tenancies. And since that time, we've seen a number of government initiatives that, are, that have been funded in the same vein, Step to Home that we manage and Together Home, a more recent sort of program in response to COVID and street sleeping. So, so we know that Housing First works because we've been doing it for a long time. And and we really firmly believe that that is the way to end street sleeping homelessness. Beautiful, and yeah, that's the and you've just um, articulated what housing first means. Um, so I don't have to don't have to do elaborate elaborate at all. That's what I love about people like you've been around, Alan. You've been doing it with us the whole time. You know, <laughs> you know about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so. There's so many questions I want to ask about that, but um, I want to highlight something um, that we talked about before the interview started, um, and I think I hinted at it at the start of the interview. Bridge Housing in the line has received awards for uh, being a, uh, a supportive place to work where people enjoy coming to work, um, and I think you, there's another term for it that you, you, you said. Um, do you want to talk about how did that happen? Um, and, it's, and it's wonderful to get the, the award for one year, but for, I think for two or three or four years in a row, Bridge Housing have got that award. Yeah, look, we've been doing a lot of what that's all about. We've been doing a lot of work um, internally um, that's based on um, basically positive psychology. And, and and it's a it's called the program's called a flourish program and it, it's really about saying what you know what do good businesses look like what sort of a culture do they have and and how how do you show up to work and how does that impact on your colleagues on yourself and and on the culture as a as a whole so some of that work is around really understanding that people are coming into work and you know, you're seeing the tip um, of what's happening for them, but there's this whole iceberg underneath of the way we've been brought up, of our values, our belief systems, and all of that impact on the on the workplace. And you really have to acknowledge that people have all of that. And how do you create a culture at work that appreciates that? Um, and so, so the work that we've done at Bridge Housing has been about understanding that and also through our leadership programs, understanding that everyone is a leader and how you embed some of that positive psychology into the way that you lead and manage um, people in the workplace. But I think most importantly, there's been a lot of work done by our staff um, and management around diversity, equity and inclusion and really trying to pr promote diversity and um, within the workplace and to acknowledge different ways of thinking and being in the world and how they bring a richness to your organisation and valuing that. And, and so that's a work in progress. No one's ever perfect. 
Um, but it really, by enabling people to present as their whole selves, by acknowledging diversity in the workplace, you actually create cultural safety in the workplace that enables people to do their best. And no one's perfect at it. It's an ongoing journey and a learning journey. Um, but it's really important to recognise that um, within within individuals and within the workplace and support that um, so that people feel safe and able to be themselves when they're at work as well. You know, when I asked you to come on the program, I just knew you were good uh, and someone <laughs> I wanted to find out, uh, find about who you really were. But um, I think you're you're walking it and talking it every day. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, we're trying. No one's perfect at this stuff, are they? I mean, the 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 thing is, um, how do, how do you present authentically? And you know, everyone everyone has bad days. Um, everyone has, you know, you've struggled to get out the door and the kids have been screaming and you're screaming and no one wants to go to school and everyone's tired and they're exhausted and and then you have to come to work and pretend that hasn't happened. Um, but actually that's not, not how it should be. You should be able to say, gosh, it's been terrible this morning and be able to reflect on how that that is on you and how that can be new presenting in the workplace. So, so I think it's about recognising that for, you know, it's more than just being at work. It, it's all of that stuff is going on for people and we need to have, you know, empathy and care and recognise that, that, yeah, we're more than just the, the professional persona, I, I guess. So, um, do you want to uh, give our listeners an example of um, something that you've just described, how that played out in the workplace? Um, and I'll let you describe it. Without You don't have to name it. It might be something you saw one of your other leaders do. How they, how do they become aware of it? Is it, is it they know the people so well that they know when something's off each day? Well, they, I think... I think what are you doing to support that sort of conversation with staff and 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 that openness? Like as a leader, it's also about you have to not just have the values, you have to live the values, and that means you have to be authentic and you have to be able to share that that with your staff as well. And and I try to do that with humour because obviously with three kids and you know yeah. um, family and aging parents, it's you you have to be able to um, share what's going on and 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 also be able to reflect and say, oh, I didn't handle that well, or be able to talk to your team about where you don't handle things well and where it doesn't go right. And I think sometimes that vulnerability, leaders don't want to be vulnerable. They don't want to, they want to pretend that they're always doing it right. And I think it's really important to say, oh, you know, I'm sorry, I was really short in that meeting or um, I didn't handle it well and be honest and open about and authentic about what's going on. And, and so it's also about modelling that um, more broadly with your staff and, and being able to have that sort of approach that says you can come and talk to me and it's going to be confidential and we'll be able to navigate and work through that um, together. And, and, and so I think, I think that involves self-awareness and part of the, the part of that, that positive psychology approach is, is actually trying to look at yourself and, and where are you coming from and how is that impacting on you and how does that impact when you present 
Um, I, I remember when we were doing the original courses through that, um, there's a piece of research that says the leader, when the leader enters enters the workplace for the first time and just can walk through, just walking through the office and walk to their their room, staff are already picking up on how you're turning up. And so if yeah. you seem like you're flustered or negative, that can actually create a contagion within the workplace and people start yeah. feeling anxious yeah. or they think what's going on. So just being aware of how you're turning up and presenting and good morning and how you actually really um, are aware of yourself and the impact is is important. And that's what we've been on a journey to learn about and to understand and then to to create the environment that enables people to be able to say when they've had a bad day or what's going on for them um, so that so that it's an, an, an accepting workplace as well. Yeah, you often hear the stories um, anecdotally in workplaces where they, they never see the boss or your yeah. manager. They, they yeah. come in, in the basement, they catch the lift, go to the <laughs> go to their office and then they go home and you never know whether they're there or not. That's, <laughs> so, right. Um, That's right. And then overlay uh, COVID and everyone's hybrid working anyway. I wonder if they ever see people. So, yeah, exactly right. I think it's about it's about being really aware of those sorts of things and um, how you, yeah, you, you can have values and, and you need to live those values and you need to present them. And that doesn't mean being perfect every time and you never make a mistake. I think it's more about being able to say, oh, gosh, I handled that really badly or, you know, I'm sorry, I did. I only had five hours sleep last night, I'm exhausted yeah. and I wasn't concentrating or just being able to present as your full self. That's, yeah, that's really beautiful. Um. Do you want to tell the listeners what the award's actually called? It's called the Voice Project. And what they do is they, it's an anonymous survey, anonymous staff survey, and then they benchmark your your organisation across um, across different industries and, and, and you can also um, focus on just the industry that you're in or you can look, look much broader than that. So it's an excellent resource because it enables that sort of independence. It enables the um, uh, anonymity for staff so that they can, you know, particularly the comments are gold because you really see what's going on for people. And yeah. um, and so that's been a really important part of our journey. And then on the other side of that, we also do something called a Squadify survey. Um, and that is really about how your team is functioning. So it's not anonymous. It's about how are we functioning within our team? And you see the areas of strengths um, there and where there might be areas of improvement. And then you as a team collectively come up with what your area to work on as a team can be. So it can really open up conversations within a team about, you know, resourcing or or the culture or the, the environment um, between staff. And it can then enable teams to work on on responding to that collectively. So it's not a top-down thing, it's driven by the team itself to say, how can we function better? Um, so that that's what we supplement in between our annual surveys is doing those Squadify surveys and they really um, create that environment that that um, is a reflection on how teams are functioning. Okay, so how many years um, have you won the award? 
I think it's four, and I think we're going to have another one this year as well. <laughs> so, so yeah, and it's been. A, uh, I've been CEO for a year. So, and I've been at Bridge Housing for seven years. So, so yeah, it's it's a fantastic um, it's fantastic to see those awards and, um, but. I think more importantly, it's it's really helpful to have tools to enable people to have those conversations every day and to support their team functioning every day, and and so you've got to you've got to hit things at all different levels, don't you? Mm. I'd already I'd already committed to having you on the table, and I found that gem about you and how you've um, how you've just explained it. I think you might have an avalanche of um, people applying for for a job at Bridge Housing. <laughs> so. Um, <laughs> So one of the things we talked about right at the start, um, uh, in, in your relationship with your husband about how it's how it's came to be that you you can both do the roles that you do, and it's a kind of a, an ever changing thing about who whose turn it is to pick up the kids. And I think um, you said that your husband Tom actually you and have sat down and made the agreement that um, he's helping you flourish in your role as CEO. But do you want to take us back? Um, I think I read an article about this when you were. Uh, I think they described you as a high-flying um, uh, <laughs> director in uh, in um, the D Department of Community Justices. Um, you found Tom out at a at a function, and um, yeah, we we worked together as as um, colleagues. You realised there was something there. Yeah, we did. I mean, we it, it, navigating a relationship in the workplace. Um, I have to say, Tom never reported to me, so there was no none of that sort of conflict. Um, but navigating a relationship in the workplace is always um, difficult. And I suppose as soon as we knew that it was serious, I you know I went straight to my boss to tell her what was happening and that I was in a relationship with someone at work and trying to be as much as possible really open about um, about that because I think I think it is a difficult um, I was fortunate it's a big workplace and you don't and and but still there is the gossip and and the rumor mill that happens within within organizations and workplaces so being really transparent about that um, it is important. And, and I think then as our relationship developed and we had children, um, you know, I think unless unless you're both in very, very high paying jobs and you can afford to have a nanny and all of the services around you, the idea that you can have it all, um, you know, three kids and a really um, senior job and with lots of responsibility I think it's a bit of a myth that's been sold particularly to yeah. women that that you can have it all um, actually you can't and particularly when your kids are young they need a lot of help they're often sick they're off childcare or off school or things happen urgently and I mean Tom and I are very lucky that I have family support and my mum in particular that, you know, can look after the kids during the day. Now she's retired and has been a, a really flexible and able to support us um, in terms of that. But but still, you know, that yeah, I think that you have to have, be able to have this conversation that at one stage one of you is going to, you know, need that support and I really do need that support from Tom and he really does keep our home ticking and yeah. he is 
yeah, he, he's really supported me as I've made, in particular in the last year, as I've made the tr transition to the CEO role, which does involve a lot of hours work, um, out of yeah. work hours work and things like that. It's been really important to have someone like that um, that's been backing me up. Um, and and being able to have that conversation. And, you know, it is interesting because often as a senior woman, you know, younger female staff members or within the industry will say, oh, you know, how do you do it? And it, it, it's not magic. It's not that I'm some superhero. Actually, uh, we, we've had to negotiate those sorts of um, things within our relationship and be really clear about that and draw on our family support to help us as well. So it's it's a lot of moving parts and a lot of management and and it's really important for people to be having those discussions, I think, within their partners um, and also more broadly in their family, they have that family support. Do you, I mean, this is very personal, what you're talking about, um, and, and we know, I think you talked about it in any relationship. Do you want to give an example about how you and Tom negotiated the minefield sometimes or uh, well, maybe I think even... Yeah, yeah, go, go. Yeah, look, I, I mean, I think the thing is that um, is, you know, even Tom went back and retrained to become a teacher a couple of years ago. And part of that was to have the extra flexibility. Um, you know, we, we do have young children and, and being a teacher and being able to have school holidays off is, is fantastic because, you know, that is a big challenge for working people yeah, and working yeah. parents is managing school holidays. Um, and being able to do that sort of thing. So it was really about saying, okay, if you're not 100% happy in your career, what, what's going to be a career that you want to do that also would help um, us as a family unit? And, and, and that's where Tom decided, you know, teaching would be that pathway for him. And, and, and you know, it, it has worked out really well um, for us because it, that extra flexibility um, during the school holidays and 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 the working uh, the working week has been has been really helpful for us and our family. He'd be a great teacher too because he's got that um, beautiful calmness and warmness yeah. and the kids are loving. So yeah, <laughs> is he doing primary or high school? Primary, yeah, five six at the yeah. moment. Yeah, they'd love him. Yeah, they would too. Uh, came onto the interview before we turned the record button on. You said you'd just come from. Um, a launch with Homelessness New South Wales. As the CEO of Bridge Housing, um, what's the future um, look like in your organisation towards the goal of solving homelessness? What, what, what's, what's the perfect plan for Rebecca Pinkstone as the CEO of Bridge Housing and, and what's that look like? Oh, look, it was an excellent um forum this morning and really um, highlighted the importance of a few things that we need to end homelessness and we need to have stable funding for housing and in particular social and affordable housing because without a safe secure home we're not going to end homelessness. Uh, we need to be making sure that we're funding our support services properly. They're at really at breaking point at the moment and we need to make sure that that service system is there in the long run for vulnerable people to keep them housed once they're in housing. Um, and the other thing is we're really picking up on that fact that, you know, homelessness is complex and you need partnerships from lots of different organisations. 
uh, working with government, non-government, the private sector to actually solve homelessness in the long term. Um, but I feel really positive. I think the changes at a federal level, there's a real focus on housing and homelessness and of doing things differently and in particular of investing in, in social housing and affordable housing. And, you know, as we all know, if we worked in the sector, um, people are paying... Um, 25% of their income, it's not going to, there's not enough money in social housing and affordable housing through the tenant rents to be able to help fund that supply without government support. And what we're seeing is some really positive directions that um, we're setting targets around increasing social and affordable housing. So I think for community housing providers, I think community housing providers should be really at the heart of the solution of that housing crisis and the delivery of that housing. Because not only can we work with private um, developers and financing to create more housing and develop more housing, we then have the, that, that social um, landlord focus for keeping really vulnerable people in housing in the long term. So I'm feeling really positive about it. Um, I think there's the opportunity for us to think a little bit differently in New South Wales. How are we using government land and overlaying that with the, the funding that's coming from the Commonwealth? How are we funding new housing in, in New South Wales? Because we really need to be focused on the most vulnerable people. I don't think it's a surprise that rates of homelessness are increasing as housing affordability is declining because yeah, there are just yeah. simply not enough houses at an affordable rate for people who need them. And, and at Bridge Housing, we're seeing people being sucked into homelessness who were never homeless, but, but they're working people or they, they just cannot find affordable housing in the private rental market. So we really need to address that extra supply of social and affordable housing so that we can arrest um, we can address the, the 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 real lack of affordable options for people in our community. And I think there's a lot of positivity and goodwill to make that happen. And there's a lot of practical examples of where it's working well across Australia and internationally. And so we just need to build on those. Um, we know what works to end homelessness. Long-term safe, secure home combined with support if people need it. And... We've got the answers, so let's do it together. Okay. Do you want to, um, you know, you're right at the coalface now and you, and, you, and you can see you just said working people are tipping into homelessness um, that have never been there before. Without naming names, do you want to just give one example of how simple it is for someone who's never even contemplated being homeless um, ends up homeless? Well, I, I mean, I think COVID really um, demonstrated that very clearly um, that, you know, many people lost their income. They were still working, but we were getting, um, you know, we have a not-for-profit real estate agency, Home Ground Real Estate, and we can be advertising for our properties. We can get 30, 40 applications from people who are working um, in the local community that just kept that, that eligible, but they just cannot find uh, accommodation that's affordable for them to rent. And it's getting so bad that we're getting, um, for example, 
couples on a pension applying for our affordable housing because they're currently renting in the private rental market and they're paying 70% of their pension on on housing. So, and, and you know, that, that's for our staff. Oh, my God, this person's completely eligible and they're paying 70% of their income and then you've got a working mum and her kids um, looking for housing too. And that's that, That's the real face of the crisis. It's not just around social housing. It's around people who are living in the private rental market and are paying, you know, such a high proportion of their income on rent. And then, you know, we just do not have the, the affordable housing stock. So it's becoming an issue. You know, we've heard about it. Older women are falling into homelessness. It's the fastest growing group of homelessness. And, and, those women are often working or they're working part time. Um, they just don't have the savings behind them or the um, or the home. Uh, they've lost their home through marriage breakdown and they're, you know, just one change, one rent increase away from facing homelessness because there's nothing else available in the market. So we really need to be saying as a society, you know, what sort of a society are we? Um, where people who are working, who, you know, who've contributed to society or on a pension can't even find a rental accommodation that, that's reasonable for them to live in. And then and then what sort of a society are we that we need to, that we have 50,000 people on a waiting list in New South Wales looking for a home who are all eligible for social housing, um, which means that basically they're paying too much in the private rental market, they're in housing stress. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think that we really need to look at um, those different that that investment and how we make the most of the investment that's coming through. And for me, community housing providers need to be at the heart of that investment because we we know community, we are from community, but we also have that social landlord hat that means that people can find a safe, secure home with with us and that we will make sure they have access to the services they need to keep their home. Last question about bridge housing. Do um, you want to showcase a recent project or development that illustrates what you do to help provide social and affordable housing for that group of people you just talked about? Is there some recent project or development that your bridge housing has just done that can demonstrate that? Um, well, I can't. I can't speak to that one at the moment. Um... Sorry to drop that on you, but just um, just to give an example about about what community housing providers can do in this space. Yeah, I mean, if, if they have funds to do it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think I think the thing that community housing providers bring is as as not not for profit organisations, we have a number of benefits and and um, tax benefits that we bring to a development. Um, and and we also have access to federal government um, loans through the National Housing and Investment Finance Corporation, NIFIC, um, that can make our developments cheaper to deliver. Um, and Bridge Housing's been, been able to bring together different types of financing and subsidies to create more housing than would be delivered if it was just delivered by the private market alone. One example of, of uh, development is our development in Glebe. It's 150 units for seniors. Um, it's integrated completely into the Glebe community. You wouldn't know what was 
the social housing versus the affordable housing versus the private market housing. And um, we've got a really strong community down there of tenants who give back to their community. And so Bridge Housing's role down there is really to support tenants to do to create their own community. And they really support um, fantastic initiatives for older people. They have a computer club, they bring yoga in, they have a golden oldies program where they watch movies and go on outings together. And our role is really to facilitate that to happen, um, as well as to use our networks with local services to create outreach down in that community so that people have access to local services in, in their homes. So uh, that's a perfect example of where Bridge Housing used our funding and subsidies combined with government land, because it was previously um, social housing, to, to really grow the amount of housing down in that community for people, for, for, for local people. So I think it's about making, making affordable housing and, and social housing stack up. It's about bringing together different sources of government finance, uh, of government grant with finance, with land from the government and, and, and the tax incentives that Bridge Housing and other community housing providers do, working with our developer partners, we can deliver more, more affordable housing on the ground. Um, and, and we really need to be looking at government to their policy settings to be taking advantage of the lessons we've already learnt from community housing providers and the developments that, we, that we're that we managing um, and, and really embrace that as the way of the future, particularly in the in the case of the Commonwealth changes recently. I've ever heard community housing provider, uh, providers explain, especially the, the tax incentives um, that are available for, for your development partners because you have the government grant processes. Um, it is a complex issue, but you have navigated it. So, that was very well explained, Beck. Last question. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Last question. Um, it's obvious that you uh, you have a passion. It's obvious that, um, that that passion is benefiting, you know, so many people's lives. What if someone else was um, thinking about becoming a leader like yourself? What would be some wisdom or advice that you would give them? Um, I think it's to be open to keep learning and keep developing as a person. So we're never fixed. Um, everybody has a potential to change and to do different things and learn different things and to keep that learning mindset all the time to different ways of being and different ways of working. And if you have that sort of mindset, I think it it, it helps you in, in all of all areas of your life because you just recognize that we can always learn and we can always change and we can always develop. I think that that brings us to a close. Beck, it's uh, been such a pleasure uh, to interview you today. I really appreciate how open and honest you've been about all the facets of your life. Thank you so much for having Thanks. me, Alan. Wow. Listeners, how good was that? We have just been treated to a lesson in Leadership 101 for the 21st century where leaders are creating empowering workplaces for real, not a made-up story. On top of this, we have a story about real negotiation in a marriage where an agreement has been made how both partners, one doing the female role and the other doing the male role, have come to an agreement where, back as the CEO, cannot do it all. Tom, her husband, changed jobs and became a primary school teacher 
so the demands of their home life, looking after three children, could benefit from a teacher's school holiday schedule and make it work to benefit the whole family. We heard firsthand how both parents take turns in being the primary caregiver when the inevitable child illness or injury occurs. We also heard firsthand how Bridge Housing has received the best workplace awards from The Voice Project for the last five years. This is an independent review, so the results cannot be manufactured. When an organisation wins the best workplace award, these organisations become an employer of choice. Employees in these organisations feel supported, empowered and engaged as they help drive organisational performance. We also heard about another survey called Squatify. And a quote about Squatify says, it helps in uncovering ways to create a workplace that enhances employee motivation, performance and well-being. Beck ended with a gem. Always keep a learning mindset and be open to different ways of being and different ways of working. As a leader, always learn, always be open to change and always be developing. If you like this episode, please leave a review on our podcast page at alansickart.com. Until next time, thanks for listening.